Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Today on the show, we're going to talk about mythology. Whoa. Gods. Yeah. That's one class I skipped that class in high school. I took a whole entire summer course on Roman and Greek mythology. Really? Do you remember anything? Yeah, imagine shoving that and reading Homer thick. Yeah. All the goodies. Yeah. Imagine the Odyssey in, in yeah, one summer. In one week. And Have then because you had to read. <laughs> <laughs> if you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month or as much as you can afford on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scores and pours. There you'll also find a playlist, a wine list, a beer list, if applicable, and you can buy merch there too. What's up, Emily Reese? How's it going, Joe Mott? Gods. Gods. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, that sounds very, like, tempestuous, portentous, mm-hmm. omnipresent. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about gods that are a lot cooler than that today. I suppose, yeah. I mean, in my world. I don't I know guess. about your world. I don't know. Mine are pretty run-of-the-mill gods, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just your usual run-of-the-mill gods. No, you're talking about Prometheus, Apollo. That's it. That's going to be dope. Yeah. I'm going to talk about people you will obviously, you will know, like Dionysus, which is incredible. Mm. Um, we'll talk about Bacchus, of course, but I'm yeah. also going to talk about Mababa Moana Maresa. Whoa. Or Waresa. Pardon me. What country is that? Or what... I guess, culture is that from? Tune in. You'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) She won't even tell me. (laughs) Yeah. So as we were talking about, we just recorded our Harvest episode, and it coincided very well with talking about mythology because it's such an important part of just a muse of art in general. There's Mm -hmm. so much, so many like paintings and just, of course, music dedicated to, and not necessarily religion. Yes, religion, but just this idea of... Mm -hmm something more powerful than us. And in grape growing and winemaking, that's happened since the beginning of time immemorial. And so my 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 gods and goddesses have it's really fun. I like have <laughs> been in love with this topic since I started in wine back in like two thousand I don't even want to say two, three ish. Yeah. Uh good times. So. Amazing. A lot of my knowledge about the gods comes from a video game called God of War. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Which somebody out there is high-fiving me virtually right now because they're like, yes. I mean, word. Hey, however yeah. you're going to get your knowledge of the gods, that's cool. Yep, yeah. But uh, I mean, and it's not that I, I guess back then I wasn't interested at all. And I would say I, I'm interested now. It's just, I just didn't want that when I was 17 years old. And everybody had to take that class. And it was just like, ugh. Well, when I took my, that class I was talking about in our intro, um, the Greek and Roman mythology class, what I didn't specify, and obviously it wasn't the time to, was like, back then, I liked the idea of knowing about these things, but I also had nothing to connect them to. Mm. And like I've alluded to on the show before, wine has brought me to so many aspects of life that I would never have been interested in if it weren't for wine. And this is one of those things where like, when you read Bacche, or Bacche, the Euripides play, Mm. 
I wouldn't have given a shit about that when I was 18. Right. But now I read it, and it's also very convoluted. I apologize. I'm sometimes somewhat disorganized during scores and pours. What? Well, I think I am. Okay. But today I'm going to be especially, but it, especially disorganized, but it reflects especially Greek and Roman mythology because when you read, it's like someone was born from someone's limb and someone, yeah. it, then it rained and then someone had a, they gave birth to something, but it's really their sister and then yeah. a wolf ate it. And it's just like all, and if you can't yeah. keep track of all that, yeah. so you won't be able to keep track of me, but I'm going to do my best today. <laughs> so have fun, everyone. <laughs> We also got a growler. We took a, a Scores and Pours took a field trip to Bent Paddle oh. uh, up in Duluth because it's one of my favorite breweries in the state. And we decided to get for this episode a growler of something that we can't get in cans here in the city. Yep. And to commemorate not only this time of year to coincide with our harvest episode, but it seemed very it seemed very appropriate to get their leafer madness. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand that reference. Um, Emily had to. I didn't either. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> Emily had to tell me about it. But yeah. uh, their leafer mat, their fest style ale, mm-hmm. which is beautifully autumnal, great for this time of year. Mm-hmm. We're eight minutes in, shall we? Yeah. All right. What, should we it. listen to music, or should I start musing on gods and stuff? Well, muse away. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. I could tank that whole growler right now. I would regret it, and I would hate myself the next day, but I wouldn't hate myself now. Okay, well, don't, because I want some. <laughs> well, okay, before we get into, because I'm going to talk about Dionysus first, because it's probably the easiest yeah. one for people to recognize, and Bacchus. What do you think of this beer? I think this beer is amazing, if, if memory serves me correctly, because there was a lot of beer drunk up in Duluth. That's actually not very true. Uh, we didn't go crazy at all, actually. But if memory serves me correctly, we did not know that Bent Paddle had a fest beer until we walked in to Bent Paddle. And I seem to remember quite a, a tittering of excitement between the two of us when we discovered that, because it was completely unexpected. And it was funny. Emily was like, why don't we get a pint of everything? Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's not how it works when you're in the business. You yeah. order things you can't get at home, and you yeah. order maybe your favorite thing you can get at home to see if it differs tap to can, batch to batch. And she was like, what? It was it was a very educational <laughs> yeah, experience. It was, pretty, it was fun. Yeah, it so was that was fun. this was resoundingly, we visited a few different brew pubs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Emily had never done the professional beer pub, quote unquote, Crawl. Not up in Duluth, um, yeah. Yeah, and so we did uh, a few different breweries, but the Fest Bent Paddle... Leaf for Madness. ...was our... F- Favorite. Like, we both loved it. Yeah, from and we, we had some incredibly delicious beers from other breweries as well that could almost take over number one, but this was my number one favorite. What I love about it is, first of all, it's a beautiful color, beautiful festive... It's like uh, just ambery kind of. Yeah, it's just a little darker than mm-hmm. amber. Yep. Yeah, and it's it's just very smooth and subtle. And just it has like hints of that amberness, but it's not like over the top ale-y kind of weirdness. Ha- if anybody has smelt like dried leaves, which if you're in Minnesota, you have for sure like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's very autumnal smelling. It's not like burnt leaves. But when yeah. you drink it, there's this notion of like, Something dried yeah. and something crackling. Mm-hmm. And it just makes for, it's a really pretty, very lightly hopped. Yeah. Like it's 
yeah. hoppy in any way in the aromatic department. It just lets the malts and, of course, the very quintessential bent paddle yeast regimen mm. be Which you recognize. I mean, you can taste a beer and be like, that's bent paddle. Because you recognize their yeast profile, yeah, which this, is remarkable to me. But I also think that this is... There's something different about this. Is there? Yeast yeah. Pro- yeah, but okay. it's a little less sour. Interesting, um, A little yeah. bit less at the fore, but it's beautiful. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's mythology. Okay. People have told us, they're like, Jill, you know, and Emily, we we love everything about the show, like, so good. Can you banter? Talk more. <laughs> like, talk more about yourselves. Talk more. So I feel, I'm, I'm proud. This is 12 minutes in. We haven't really talked about anything. <laughs> we haven't done shit. <laughs> this is great. Okay. So let's get, let's get to it. So I chose Dionysus to start with because it's the most recognizable of the wine gods and goddesses or beer gods and goddesses, even though it's not beer. This is wine specific. And Dionysus is the god of when you look it up on or look him up on many different websites, it talks about, you know, the god of wine, grape growing. It also, he, it goes into the god of theater, the god of ecstasy, fertility, which, but how many people drink and get into issue, you know, I mean, you could go on down a long, long list of forks in the road, but I'm not necessarily going to do that here. I want to just talk about Dionysus as a wine god and that he is one of the oldest Greek gods. They think that he was born, quote unquote, yeah. somewhere around southern present-day Bulgaria, northeastern Greece, like where we would call the area of Thrace. Thracian. Okay. And what's cool about it is there are many different, when you look at just whether it is play, whether they're plays, whether they're, you know, historical documents from people that are talking about Dionysus, inevitably what you see so often is this word free. This word alluding to the fact that, you know, there's a freedom in speech, theater, action. And what ends up coming about, I think, is like, as I kind of distill all of that, is like what's at the heart of this God and this cult is like the surrender of personal identity. Because people are getting, they're drinking, and they are kind of forgetting what many people go through after a couple few pints of beer and maybe one too many. They're kind of forgetting themselves and they're making decisions, both good and bad. Mm-hmm that have to do with like an alter ego almost. And it's it's fascinating to read the theater and things that surround Dionysus. One of the earliest known festivals to Dionysus is called Anthisteria. That name comes from the spring month of Anthisterion, which was they were tapping the new wine in springtime. Okay. So this is one of the oldest new wine festivals. We think of Beaujolais Nouveau. Long before there was Beaujolais Nouveau, mm-hmm. there was Anthesteria. Where? Um, in the 10th century BCE, around Athens. Okay. Around, like, this was before the whole Ionian migration east, like, before wine and oh, the Greek influence on present-day Turkey, we'll say. This is very center to that culture in ancient Greece. And just amazing. I'll, I'll go... I'll go into a really amazing story that this morning literally made me teary-eyed. I wasn't hungover and I wasn't drinking. (laughs) I was just very excited about it. But I think this is a good spot to stop and listen to some music. Let's just right away listen to uh, this piece by Benjamin Britten called Young Apollo. (laughs) 
This is a piece by the British composer Benjamin Britten, and it's B-R-I-T-T-E-N, just so you know, Britain, not B-R-I-T-A-I-N, like Great Britain. But anyway, it's handy that he was from Great Britain, although it wasn't Great Britain at the time. Uh, so Benjamin Britten wrote this piece called Young Apollo when he was about 25 years old. He subtitled it Fanfare for Piano, String Quartet, and String Orchestra. So right at the beginning there, that's what we heard. We heard solo piano and string quartet. We didn't hear the full orchestra yet, but they come in and are, are prevalent throughout the piece. It's about a nine-minute piece or so. It's in the key of A major pretty much the whole time. It, Which that's rare, right? It's that it stays pretty rare, I think, for that era. So this was 1939. And the key of A major held importance for Britain. And that's according to a man who wrote a book about Britain and kind of musicologist kind of guy who knows a lot about Benjamin Britten, <laughs> named John Bridkett, and John says that that Britten used that key of A major basically to symbolize the essential male beauty. Benjamin Britten was gay, and this piece was inspired by a relationship he had with a man named Wolf Scherchen. I can't quite say it I right. I think it's probably right. Yeah. Scherchen or Scherchen? Scherchen. Wolf ended up changing his name. Uh, but we're going to call him Wolf through the through the thing. It's more fun to say Wolf. It is way more fun to say Wolf. So Britain was inspired by his relationship with Wolf and Wolf's favorite poet, who was John Keats. John Keats wrote an epic called Hyperion, which he didn't finish. The very last line of Hyperion, which again was unfinished, but the very last line is as follows. He stands before us, the new dazzling sun god quivering with radiant vitality. There you go. Be the beautiful Wolf Skerchen as the inspiration for Benjamin Britten's young Apollo. Apollo, of course, god of the sun, but also, as you were saying, with mythology, he's also the god of healing, medicine, archery, music, poetry, <laughs> just go on and on and on. And probably Apollo, slept with Dionysus and had some babies yeah. <laughs> that were like, they came out of someone's ankle. You know Apollo I mean? was uh, one of the Olympians. So he was one of the mm -hmm. ones who lived on Mount Olympus. Apollo also had a twin sister, Artemis. And Apollo was the son of Zeus and Leto. So there you go. That's a little bit background on, on Apollo. And I have more to say about this piece, but it's just um, interesting, what we call kind of monotonal, where it's pretty much in A major almost the entire time. We almost never stray from A major, so we call that monotonal. Monotonal. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Should I go into a really cool, as, as this is kind of getting schizophrenic and amazing, it's like, we're like, do, 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 yeah. I'll talk about a really cool thing I came up with, and I'm going to actually quote it uh, roughly, I'm going to give my own twist to it, because I 
well, not my own twist. I'm not going to make stuff up, but I'm going to talk just kind of part paraphrase, part not. I've spoken briefly about my love for the Oxford Companion to Wine, written by Jancis Robinson and and Hugh Johnson before. I think it's when you're coming up and you're getting your sommelier certificate, it's literally as big as when you used to have the world's complete dictionary and it was like when it was super huge and it was like two different volumes a to m or whatever and m to z this was that size and it was wine terms amazing okay and so when you look up mythology that gives and you look up uh dionysus it gives this this beautiful story quote and partly paraphrasing one well-known myth about dionysus concerns the invention of wine so that's a Right there, that's huge because we know that now that happened in the Republic of Georgia Mm -hmm. as far as we know, right? But Dionysus discloses the secret of winemaking to the peasant Icarius and his daughter Erigone or Erigone with whom he had lodged as a guest in return for their hospitality. Obedient to the gods' command to teach the art to the other people, Icarius shares his wine with a group of shepherds. At first, of course, this is where I get, you know, I'm yeah. going to paraphrase. They drink wine. They get drunk. They think they're getting poisoned because they've never had that experience before. So they turned on him. They beat the shit out of him and killed him, the peasant. And for a long time, his body couldn't be found. But eventually, Icarius's faithful dog, Muerdia, leads Erigone, his daughter, to the spot where his he lied buried. Erigone hung herself in despair, very Greek mythology par excellence. But however, in death they receive their due rewards. Icarius belongs to the star Buotis and his daughter, the constellation Virgo. And Moera becomes Canis or Sidious, the dog star. Buotis, also known in Greek as the grape gatherer, rises in the autumn at the time of the vintage, and in the warm climate of Greece, the vintage may well have taken place sometime before the autumnal equinox, still under the constellation of Virgo. And we talk about Pliny the Elder here, and him talking about when you see the dog star, it's a good time to like resonate your things to close your wine jars. And it just makes me think like, OMG. Like... <sighs> What we're talking about in a mythological sense has now become people have reasoned because they're not so in their own belly button as some Spaniards in their ombligo looking at their own belly buttons as the Spaniards would say. They're like thinking celestially and they're mm-hmm. thinking what's happening around them in their way to make sense of their gods. And I just think it's beautiful and That's a fascinating amazing. way to relate Dionysus and wine to when to do what. I don't know. So Dionysus teaches the peasant how to make wine. He makes the wine, shares it with this these people. They get drunk, freak out, and kill him. Yeah. Rough. But then, rough. But then what happens to those constellations becomes, right. and those people, assholes, but they're going <laughs> to spread that word once they realize that that was fun. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be like a lesson on so many different levels. Yeah. It's like incredible. Yeah. So beautiful. I love that. He was known as being an agricultural god too, but I won't go too into that because that goes into a whole other realm of like sowing and reaping and let's just talk gods and let's just drink. Yeah, that sounds good. Scores and pours. Scores and pours. Dionysus. Dionysus.
Sorry, we're drinking beer, Dionysus. <laughs> we'll tell you why in a second. <sighs> Which actually, this might be a good time to just quickly talk about Dionysus is the Greek god of, let's say, wine, winemaking, grapes, yeah. grape growing. Bacchus is the Roman god. But I what I love about the Oxford Companion and actually a few other sources, because it's very appropriate to COVID times, it's a sanitized version of Dionysus. because Bacchus is? Yeah. Huh. Because Dionysus came down and he was like literally, when they talk about him coming down and turning into something else to romance the the civilians of Thebes and then th- everybody in Thebes got wasted and had, you know, people weren't, when you read Bacca, people weren't all getting wasted. I mean, some people were, yeah. but people were just like, Drinking a little bit and learning to be like they're outside of themselves, right? Yeah. Slightly. And yep. what is interesting is that concept of like someone coming from outside, which is now a substance, we'll say not a person, mm-hmm. actual person. And even this could be related to Jesus Christ, something coming out of somewhere else mm-hmm. and creating something within you that is makes you think something else. Bacchus ended up just sort of being like this god of wine and kind of wine almost just deified as opposed to having all of these other connotations of like fertility, drunkenness, theater, that ended up becoming too much for the Roman people, especially under the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus, who was very, like, ABC, okay. DEFG, and in the Rom- or in the Greek times, not the case. <laughs> so even though we have so many of their systems that we use today, it's yeah. it's incredible how much Bacchus ended up becoming, like, a clean version of Dionysus. I did not know that. I, for some reason, thought they were one and the same, but that, again, demonstrates my lack of knowledge about mythology. (laughs) I mean, most people would think that. And, I mean, most people in wine would think that. And when you look at actual visuals from the Greek and the Roman times, there's not really much distinction what is left for us to see in Mm. pottery. And, I mean, there there was like a whole, there were months where people would be like, Joe, what are you doing today? And I'd be like, I can't hang out. I'm looking at Greek pottery. (laughs) I mean, there's like amazing references that we can see the differences between the two gods. A couple more words about young Apollo, because what's one of the things that's interesting about this piece is that after two performances, Benjamin Britten refused to allow it to be performed, and it wasn't performed again until after he died. And it was performed sometime in the 70s, 1970s. There are a couple different theories or hypotheses as to why that was the case. Uh, it's possible that because it was just all in A major, Britain was like, well, this is dumb. I don't want people to hear this piece. It's also possible that Britain's partner at the time, Peter Pears, decided that he didn't want that piece out in the public because it was... Um, he was jealous it wasn't in reference to him. Yeah, because it was in reference to someone else. So there are a few different reasons out there that that could have been the case, but that's kind of a, an interesting thing that he only ever allowed those two performances. And, and he was, like I said, young. He was 25 when he wrote it, and so it just never was heard again uh, throughout the rest of his life. So let's just listen to a little bit more of this, and then we'll move on to something Please. else. Please. 
think it's interesting too that it's a fanfare without any brass. That he called it a fanfare, and and to me the fanfariest part of this whole piece is the piano. The piano is just very dominant and very in your face yeah. and all over the place, bombastic. Like, yeah, I mean maybe Britain just thought it was too ooh, over quivering the in the sun. Quivering in the sun. Yeah. Amazing. It's a fun little Which, piece. Please, everybody, t- tune in if you haven't already to our tone poem episode because this is like again very representative of like if you listen to this piece on NPR, you'd think it was beautiful, or Spotify, or Amazon Music, mm-hmm. wherever you get your streaming music. But like, if you know the base of the piece and know, you know, you were talking about sun god and yeah, this lover and all these things, like yep. It means something else when you listen. Yeah, and it's bright-sounding music, too, and the piano enhances that brightness, too, because of its timbre. Britton was commissioned by the CBC. He was over uh, here because he was a conscientious conscientious objector, didn't want to be uh, conscripted into the war. And so he and Peter Pears came to the U.S. and Canada, and he got this um, commission from the CBC. Hmm. Pretty cool. And dedicated it to the conductor. Inspired by Wolf, dedicated to someone else. Yeah. So there you go. A little Young Apollo by Benjamin Britten, a not often heard piece when it comes to Britten. There's a lot more. Uh, we've talked about Britten before with his uh, violin concerto, which is a piece that he was also working on when he came over this way back mm. then. So, yeah. All right. So I am empty. Me too. Ms. Reese. I mean, we're, av- we're drinking out of small little, in homage to our harvest episode, we're drinking out of small little cute humble glasses, but fill me up because I'm empty. <laughs> <laughs> that might bubble over. Not, no, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The reason we chose beer today was because not only are we celebrating kind of this harvest aut- autumnal time of year, but I really wanted to focus on a couple gods that people may or may not have heard of in the kind of the routine world of gods. I think people, <laughs> you know, they have heard of various, you know, Zeus and yeah. Athena and exactly yeah, um, but you probably haven't heard of Ninkazi unless not. you, if you're a brewer, even a home brewer, they're geeks. Yeah. They have spreadsheets <laughs> and shit about how many like pounds of this and that go to each mash bill and whatnot. Mash bill like you're making beer, so they've heard of Ninkazi, who she was the Sumerian goddess of beer. And when I say Sumerian, they're like 3,000-ish BCE to like, or actually it's like 4,000-ish BCE to, depends on the source, you consult 2300, 1800 BCE. Okay, so we're like long flipping time ago. <laughs> and Ninkazi, when we think of the tablets that exist from this time period, there are very few. And what does exist? The hymn to Ninkazi. Nice. I know. <laughs> Sing it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's actually not a it's not a hymn to be sung. It's poetic in the fact that it is a recipe for beer to be like brewed and also it is like a homage to her. But it is really repetitive. So when you read it online, you're like, this is kind of stupid. <laughs> but what it really why it's so beautiful is because it evokes this notion of like if you were the one of the lucky people that could read 
it was repetitive enough that you could remember it and mm. pass it on verbally to people. Sure. And so the Himton and Kazi was around, I don't know, it was written around 1800 BCE. And it's the first recipe ever I'm holding on to my heart <laughs> for beer. Wow. And people have replicated it and been like, this is garbage. <laughs> And I'm like, well, of course it is. It was yeah. the flip in 1800 BCE, BCE, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, but so what happens was they there's this debate in the beer world and in the baking world and the grains world of like what came first, beer or bread? And I I don't really have an opinion. I just love to read all about it. But yeah. in the Himton and Kazi, the recipe is they take a hunk of a really dark, maybe a rye-ish bread and not to be confused with only rye it's rye with like a bunch of other dark grains okay doesn't specify that but what scholars think it could be and it's mixed with honey to ferment why because they probably didn't know that if the about the conversion of diastase and like if you leave your grains long enough in water and then drain them and this conversion that happens they just added honey because honey was a sugar source for yeast that they didn't know about, yeah. and it would also make it more palatable because, sure. let's face it, like water from bread would be gross. Yes. So let's put honey on there, like pancakes. Think of pancakes yep. without syrup. Yeah. And then you're adding grapes to that. Weird. Why? More antioxidants, probably. Obviously, they didn't know this. Yeah. But then um, they drank this all. What what likely happened, let's just, I'm going to rewind a quick second, was someone made a porridge or a gruel and forgot about it. Came yeah. back a few days later, it fermented in the sun, maybe, and they drank it, and they got a little happy and was like, whoa, this freaking porridge is the best thing ever. <laughs> and then they go try to replicate that. How do yep. we make it taste better? Okay. Yep. So that's what. And they're drinking it out of straws, which if you look straws? at a lot of different, yeah, a lot of different oh. artwork, hieroglyphics from this time period, yeah. there's a lot of straw drinking, because why? You're drinking flipping porridge. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of shit floating at the bottom. Oh. So those straws would be a way to drink and not get a bunch of sediment, and it was yeah. communal. And what was amazing was this was a time period when you look at the hieroglyphics from the day two, a lot of people in tablets, people were like, you had higher up casts drinking with lower casts. People were just getting together on these bowls and getting it. Drink, which is like incredible. Yeah. And when they, I think when they first, the um, the first people to replicate this, I don't think it was Great Lakes, although it may have been out of Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. And it was like really gross. And the scholar was like, but this is so historical. I would have been like, I don't give a shit how gross it is. I want to drink that. Yeah. Everybody was drinking it out of straws. I think I remember that something about that, which is really cool. Yeah. But Siduri is Ninkazi's daughter. Okay. Another goddess yes. of beer. Whoa. And she was right around, you know, the 1800s BCE as well. There are a lot of, like, if anybody has read the Epic of Gilgamesh, highly recommend it. It's the, probably the one of the oldest pieces of literature on planet Earth we have. Wow. I'm watching how long I'm talking here, and I'm getting kind of perturbed, but that's okay, because <laughs> I'm getting excited. Siduri, I've done a lot of training for wine and beer and what... Sometimes when I go in, I'll have like this unexpected training session and I talk about Siduri and I see the staff all look at me like a deer in headlights. And I tell them, listen, Siduri, not only, I mean, this is obviously a very distilled quick version, but she's goddess of beer, but she was in the oldest literature we have of time. She was a tavern keeper 
and hospitalitarian. Nice. So she took care of people in exchange. She gave people beer and a place to stay in exchange for money. And that's one of the oldest professions we have in written language ever. So servers and bartenders out there don't think there is anything not amazing about what you're doing because mm. providing hospitality to people is incredible. And Siduri, one of the oldest depictions of anything regarding not only fermentation, but also and being a tavern keeper, but like hospitality was a female. And that's just awesome. So that's amazing. Yeah. I just think that's an important thing to mention. Totally. That's amazing. Uh, Siduri, spell it for me. S-I-D-U-R-I. Interesting. There's a producer of wine called Siduri, but I won't talk about that. It's not <laughs> as cool as a story. Epic of Gil- Gilgamesh is a really amazing story about these two best friends that go on this journey together. And the part that Siduri plays is very minor. Okay. But it ends up being an entire part of a tablet. And even other tablets from that time period, they talk about taxing and they talk about the importance of beer and like if you try to tax beer too much, yeah. screw you because everybody deserves beer yes. and everybody deserves good beer. It's fascinating. I agree. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Scores and pours. To Siduri. Siduri. What else do we have on the listening docket? Well, I'm still thinking about these tablets. So on these, ta- like how many tablets are there? Is this like a 500-page book? Are there like 1,500 tablets? No, or? no, um, no I don't think so. I, I don't know. I can't tell you how many tablets the Epic of Gilgamesh is, um, okay. but I know that the book is, I mean, it depends on the print you're reading, but the book I read was, I think, like 180 to 200 something. I mean, it's not, and it's half of it's broken. So okay. it'll it'll give you the sure. reading and then all of a sudden it breaks and it states in, in good translations it states it's broken mm-hmm. and this is how many lines are broken okay and then it goes on Amazing. so that you can try to you know you're trying to fill in the blanks but you can't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so now you're just like yeah inventing yeah. it's just ama- it's just an incredible experience i i just am so that that whole process of like carving a story out into a tablet just blows my mind i mean obviously i understand they didn't have ink and they weren't on that page so to speak yet but it's just remarkable to me because no pun intended but pun accepted as my father would say yes like imagine having a great idea and not you're like still halfway through the word where or something like that you finally finish carving out the word where and then you're like wait what was I gonna say like isn't that it's just overwhelming I think that there were I I wonder if there are more ideas you know I don't know the Akkadian Akkadian and Sumerian texts they're like around the same time period Akkadian I think was earlier and when you look at Akkadian, or no, excuse me, Sumerian, I think was written in Akkadian, something like that. But when you look at them, they seem like they're more like hieroglyphs, where they're ideas that are fleshed out. They're not such like at a level that like okay, you know, gotcha. Our alphabets are. I see. I mean, they are and they aren't. Yeah. Su. What's her name? Siduri. Siduri. And Ninkazi. Ninkazi. Prometheus, though. Speaking of heavy tragedy, <laughs> we were talking about how heavy uh, harvest was and the the songs surrounding harvest. Sometimes, let's just go here. Yeah, let's talk and about Prometheus. Whoa, Prometheus was a titan, and the titans preceded the Olympians. Prometheus is the one who apparently gave fire to humans, and Zeus got mad and punished Prometheus 
by tying him to a rock and having an eagle eat out his liver every day. And so overnight, his liver would heal, and then the next day, the eagle would come back and peck it out again. You know what, Lord, the, what I have to say to that? Yeah. I will never want to ever provide fire to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot afford to have my liver eaten out by, by any, an, eagle. an eagle. Exactly. And the reason liver is because in Greek times, in the mythology times, that's where you had emotions and feelings was in your liver. Uh, Wait, that's where I still have emotions and feelings. What are you talking about? (laughs) Come on. So, you know, Prometheus, on the outside, you could say, you know, wow, look, he's trying to do this amazing thing for humanity to advance humanity into actual civilization, and he just gets punished by the gods. So there's this tragic thing where he's trying to be helpful. He was also kind of a trickster, uh, Prometheus was. But anyway, it's funny because that's one of the gods I remember the most from the video game, because you see him out there getting his liver pecked out, of course. Uh, In any event, a Russian composer named Alexander Scriabin wrote a tone poem called Prometheus, the poem of fire, Prometheus, god of fire. Uh, This was Scriabin's Opus 60. He wrote it in 1910, about five years before he died. Scriabin lived from 1872 to 1915. And scre- oh, lots of fun years there. <laughs> In <laughs> Russia? What was happening there? <laughs> like, In Russia, Lord. yeah. Lord. Wow. Uh, and this piece is, I think, fascinating. It's, it's about 20 minutes. It's, it's kind of a little bit of a long listen, but it's tremendously evocative of, uh, like, the trumpets are symbolize fire. And, I mean, there's just all this really vivid imagery that you can see while you're hearing the music. One, there there are so many cool things about this piece. Uh, firstly, Scriabin was what we call a synesthete, or he had what's called synesthesia. That means when Scriabin heard music, he saw colors. So if he heard the key of C major, for instance, he saw blue. Just that's what came up into his head or whatever. I'm, and I'm, who knows if that's what he actually saw, but he would see a color hmm. based off of tonality. This is there are many other composers that you can find in the jazz world, in the classical world, all kinds of people who name pieces after colors because that's what they see when they hear a certain sound. Um, uh, this piece that Scriabin wrote called for an instrument called the color organ, which is an organ that would, depending on what note you're pushing, a color would display. You know, there, and there are versions of that all over YouTube. You can see all kinds of different versions of it, and no one's entirely sure if Scriabin intended to have an organ that flooded the concert hall with a certain color or if it was supposed to be projected on the back because it never happened during his lifetime. Uh, but it's just a, an interesting touch to add to this piece. And if you search enough online, you can find his color map, basically, where he takes uh, a pattern of keys called the circle of fifths, it's a whole thing in, in music, and assigns colors for each key. And you can see his little map and follow through this piece. Uh, the, but however, the, the thing about this piece is it's not, it's not the most tonal as you would think. It's not atonal in that it doesn't lack tonality, but it's not traditional harmony. It's, it's a little crunchy and dissonant, and kind of maintains that dissonant dissonance all the way through until the very last chord. Welcome to the show. 
by the way. Yeah. Chunky and dissonant and <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, and I mean it's just I I this find this episode, I should say this episode. Yeah, I find this piece quite quite a treat and and on each listen I I like it that much more. I mean, I, I feel like you can kind of just hear this this story. Kind, it's loosely based on the the myth of Prometheus. It's not like a, you know, letter by letter, uh, you know, telling of this certain Prometheus myth in any way. But you can just kind of feel inspired the, by it, but maybe not necessarily a tone poem. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is a tone poem, but it's it's not like yeah, it's not a word for word thing. So uh, let's just listen to a little of it, and then I can tell you a little bit more about the harmony. Can't wait. Yeah. Just Jill's face. <laughs> Jill's face right now on this first chord. She's like, okay. We so we as we were driving up. Of course, it's like with Emily and I. It's scores to Duluth. Pours, yeah, yeah, to to Duluth to procure some beer. We were like, it's scores and pours all the time, right? And we we were trying to listen to this with all the windows open, and we were like, nope. no, it's just not gonna. It's just you can't hear. It goes, yeah. so quiet. That's why you listen to harpsichord when you're on a road trip. Shut up. You do not. <laughs> I threw on Kim Petras because yeah. I was like, no. Uh, one of the... Uh, there are so many just interesting little facts about this piece. Uh, one of them is that Scriabin was fascinated by a set of six particular notes. And those six notes are very important throughout this piece. It's what we heard at the very beginning. And... It's not an entirely tonal set of notes, right? I'm going to list you the notes, and I'll play them on a keyboard for you. A, D sharp, G, C sharp, F sharp, B. A, D sharp, G, C sharp, F sharp, B. Those six notes are heard in all kinds of various ways throughout this piece. Upside down, backwards, moved around. And these six notes were important to Scriabin in other works of music as well, but not necessarily always in that order, not necessarily always starting on A. Maybe he'd transpose it and do that whole set of six notes starting on a different note. Um, He's doing what What's-His-Dude did. What's-His-Dude. Which dude? The dude um, who did all the different inversions. Oh, yes. Uh, similar to 12-tone Rose is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Not as strict of a following as that. So he, because the 12-tone music has very specific rules that you're, you know, quote unquote, supposed to follow. Okay. Okay. This doesn't follow those rules. It's just, and you could think of this uh, sometimes when we talk about a six-note set, we'd call it a hexachord. So this hexachord comes up in other works of Scriabin as well. Okay. But unlike 12-tone music, he futzes with it in in more ways than you're allowed to do in in a strict 12-tone or you know, he's however, being yeah. he's being 
he's doing natty wine in a way that you can recognize if you if you know yeah. classical music or if you know yep but he's he's keeping it constrained to some extent yep but he's natty exactly he's doing okay yep he's doing his own thing now Scriabin also it's virtually impossible to find a performance of it with color organ that just doesn't happen and there's an optional choir at the end which is it being optional unusual to find a recording that has a choir come in at the end uh, but you'll hear the piano, so this is kind of a fun little parallel to this Benjamin Britten piece, right? And Scriabin wrote this piece, mind you, about f- 20 years before, almost 30 years before Britten wrote his Young Apollo. And when you think, hear them tonally speaking, how Britten's is like A major all day, all the whole nine minutes, and this is 30 years before, and it's you know, for all intents and purposes, and to oversimplify it, it's all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. So you can hear just in that 30-year time period how just varied the world of classical music was. Could it also be, and pardon, this is a super ignorant question, but and like based off of just trying to make some sense of reality, which I try to do with wine all the time, right? You have all these ideas and you try to distill them into what is happening. When I think of fire that's never predictable and it's always all over the place. When I think of Apollo, that's mm-hmm. cut and it's chiseled and it's beautiful and it's, yeah. you never see a, a Apollo that looks a certain way. Apollo yeah. always Apollo looks in like, sweatpants. Yeah, no, you don't <laughs> see that. And if you do, they're cut sweatpants and they're $900 from like whatever, from whoever, Vera Wang or some shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, is it, could that at all be part of it or no? I'm Just not sure. The, that's the really... gods that they are speaking to? Perhaps, yeah. I, I wouldn't discount that in any way. I, I Scriabin was interested in religion, but he wasn't maybe perhaps religious, and interested in studying gods from various angles around the world. That's very much speaks to how I look at the world of sure. religion, is like, it's so interesting to f- know... Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. just look at what we're talking about today and what I'll continue to talk about Yeah. whenever you're ready. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we can, well, let's come back to this. So the last couple gods I want to talk about and goddesses. One is I wanted to include a god from South America. I think that the Mayan and the Aztecan culture, I mean, I love coffee and I love chocolate a lot. I mean, I eat dark chocolate every morning for breakfast and... I don't think that our world of fermentation, wine, beer, weird things that we can drink would be complete without, like, I love mezcal at all, right? So it wouldn't be complete without talking about the god Akan, A-C-A-N, I think is how you pronounce that. And Akan is the Mayan god of wine and getting boozy. I mean, <laughs> getting boozy. I mean, I mean, people needed to have experiences. What's amazing about this is in this culture, the Mayans drank a drink called balache or balache, which is basically fermented. It's honey. And the balache, it's the, added to that the tree bark from the balache tree. Mm. And you know, fermented honey, you'd usually, you'd probably add water to that because if it's too sweet, the sugars are going to beat the yeasts in that battle that back then they didn't know about. But that said, they knew to dilute to a certain, probably 
amount, not percentage, because they didn't know at that time. And then the Balache tree bark gave this like really interesting flavor and also more like intense effect. What's crazy is they had this usually in enema form. Oh, really? The enema form, I guess, was more intense. Like it happened faster. It was more <laughs> like a, I guess, it, not this way because I don't know, but like more of a heroin effect as opposed to like, I don't know, if it took 30 minutes to get in your bloodstream or something hmm. like that. Okay. And what's interesting is when the Spaniards came and started to conquer, quote unquote, the Mayan area and peoples, yeah. they were like forbade making this drink, making this drink this way, using it this way. And you were like, you know, obviously mm. because they were, this God was not Jesus Christ and didn't, you know, come with it all that like taxing and yeah. pay me, pay me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I believe in God. Now give me some money. Yeah. It was so different than that, but that's okay. just an f- interesting yeah. A beverage, B that yeah. way. Yeah. But it would produce these results that were like, you'd shoot it and it would be like instantaneous almost. Wow. I know. Crazy. It kind of makes me want to do it, but whatever. Wow. Not I'm, me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just like, what's crazy is, so, and just like when I think about things like this, this is just like to open it up for the scores and boards people. But, like I'm not a drug person. Like I don't do drugs. I don't like smoke pot. I don't do all that. It's but, true. Uh, but like what I, what I find interesting about like everywhere I've gone for since I could drink yeah. that I've traveled the local drink, be it like caffeine, coffee, wine, beer, all the things, I've been enamored with learning about them. And I think it's because you can only do so much. You have to respect them. I would love to have 1,700 cups of coffee, but I can't. Yeah. And I would love to have 900 glasses of wine. I can't. Right. And so like something like that, I'm like, God, I really want to know because it's it alters you, right? But you have to be, you have to really be vigilant, careful mm-hmm. and be like this sense of self, like this self-awareness that I yeah. think is really beautiful yeah. to like be able to experience these things, right? I don't know. Yeah. So that's why I'd love to do that to try to, you know, because I, I feel like I could test those limits just see what it's like. Because yeah. it's alcohol. Part yeah. of it would be weird because it'd be on the rear end. But I mean, I'd be willing to like do it that way. Amazing. Another god and goddess I want to talk about, well, in this case, goddess. And you want to try that? Well, I think it'd be fascinating to <laughs> Let's know. Let's go like, back to that for a minute. Well, because I, I just, I and what would, the only thing that would sway me is that the only reason I love coffee and tea and yeah. beer and wine and yeah. I not really vodka, but, you know, mezcal, say. Sure. Like all these things, gin is because I can taste them and I can go, it tastes like that. Yeah. It brings me to this place in culture, history, painting. I can assimilate. Yeah. What makes me curious about that is I can't. Like that has not, I would want to taste it first and then I would want to have a day with that taste. I would want to know what that tastes like. Did people drink it though? I think they did. Okay. Okay. But But then I would... I would want to know, I would want to have a day or two with that experience, yeah. taste it, know what it does, know what it, it tastes like. Yeah. How do they make it? I would, well, that would be, if I could sure. know what, how, and then if we're going to, it's like, okay, well, I don't know. If someone told me to t- do this wine this certain way, I'd probably be like, uh, I, I don't know if I would because I can't taste it. And for me, that's yeah. 99.9% of it. Yeah. 
but I'd be I'd be curious, honestly, because it is such a cultural experience. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, word up. I've had a lot of weirder situations, probably. Okay, let's go to instead of talking about shooting balache in the out. Yeah, let's talk about Mababa Moana Waresa. Yes, a female deity from the Zulu religion, Southern Africa, and this is a polytheistic religion. With so many different gods and goddesses, it's incredible. Very based on formation, people, but very based on nature. And this is one of the main deities. Why? She taught people to make beer. Many other things. Mm. But when people want to pray to a god or goddess to like have good fortune, yeah, who do they pray to? They pray to her. Yeah. Love Yeah, it. they do. <laughs> not, not, not. They're not praying to the goddess of the home or the god or goddess of I don't know good podcast making. <laughs> they are praying to the god or goddess that taught people to make beer. Cheers to her. Cheers to Mababa Moana Waresa. Mababa. That's going to be our next set of uh, scores and pours merch. BTW <laughs> is having just all the gods and goddesses, not all, but many we front just, and back. Yes, list the. From all the world, all the alcohol gods. Yes. I mean. Yes. That'd be great. Scriabin's Prometheus for a huge orchestra. This is for a very large ensemble in addition to the piano. We've talked a little bit about this where in, you know, the Baroque era, the classical era, you see smaller ensembles, you know, maybe... 20 musicians on stage. And then, of course, the bigger the world gets, the more instruments we invent, the crazier music gets. We just keep adding people on stage. So in Haydn's time, for instance, Haydn was in the classical era. So in the 1700s, let's just say 1780, okay? Haydn's orchestra might have had 20 people in it. And he might have had one or two flutes, maybe one or two clarinets, maybe, you know... Scriabin writes his for, if we go in score order, which there is an order, like the alphabet, when we talk about instruments, there's an order. Three flutes, three oboes, three clarinets, and three bassoons. However, he also wants a piccolo player, which is the little bitty tiny flute. So now we've got four flute players on stage. He wants an English horn, or also called cor anglais, which is a much longer looking oboe. So now Isn't there a four. bass clarinet? Whoop whoop. Yeah, there's bass so clarinet. Great. There's contrabassoon. So not so we don't have three flutes, three oboes, three clarinets, three bassoons. We have four flute players, four oboe players, four clarinets, and four bassoons. Okay. Eight horns, which common laymen would call them French horns. Eight of those motherfuckers. I'm sorry, and that's a <laughs> lot. That is a lot of horns. <laughs> Five trumpets, that's also a lot of trumpets. Three is a lot of trumpets, and he's got five on stage. Three trombones and a tuba. I kind of wish there were two tubas, but whatever. And then uh, just an absolute host of percussion. So we've got timpani, which those are, as I mentioned, called kettle drums. Glockenspiel, which we've talked about on Scores and Pours before. There's Celesta, which we talked about on Scores and Pours. Tubular bells, which are also, you can think of as chimes. They sound like church bells. There's a triangle. Triangle. I wonder if I could play the triangle. Like, if I sat in, could I, like, how would I audition for that? I bet you could play the tam-tam as well. Tam-tam, also known as gong. 
Oh, yeah. So, okay, but so how could I audition for that? Well, you'd probably also need to be able to play timpani, glockenspiel, tubular bells, cymbals, triangle, bass drum, tam-tam, snare drum. You'd have to be able to play all of those things. I'll just I'm offer sorry to up say. to have some balache <laughs> via the enema and keep drinking fest beer. That's cool. I'll, I'll do that instead. Uh, two harps. I mean, this is this is a massive romantic size. This is an oversized orchestra, and you feel that power as you're listening to this piece. It just I mean, gets, it's fire. It's fire. It's amazing. Yeah. It's actually incredibly appropriate. It is. So let's listen to the last 30 seconds. Yeah. Sweet Jesus! Sweetening Kazi and all the things! <laughs> that, my friends, was an F-sharp major chord. And that's the really kind of the only major chord you hear in the whole thing. And that's how it ends. It's amazing. It's, it's powerful. I want to see this piece performed live, I think this would be an amazing experience. I, th I think there are a lot of pieces that you can hear live and you're like, oh, that was great. And I think there are other pieces that really just, if, if you have any kind of soul, you just have to go see live when it's possible again. Like I feel that way about Bolero or by Maurice Ravel or Ottorino Rospighi's Pines of Rome is pretty great to see live. I think the Brandenburg Concerti are amazing to see live. And I think this piece would be an absolute ride to see live i think it would be amazing and people would talk it, would, about would it be a cool ride to see live if everybody got an enema of yeah. galache <laughs> on the way in and on the way <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe not time. on the way maybe yeah, like 10 maybe minutes on the way before out. yeah yeah or like oh yeah no that'd be terrible because there's only a certain amount of bathrooms covid never mind it's a terrible idea i was like trying to like just piece and parcel it out like with our episode but no yeah. maybe we just need to have sips of wine Scriabin that's kind of all I got I mean there's first that's all uh, you got you had you brought Prometheus to the party I brought Prometheus and to the I party and I brought Dionysus and yeah Ninkazi and and Supatra or whatever her name was Mabawa Moana Waresa yeah at all so I think, you know, we got, we, and we have so many more we could cover. Oh. Like when we talk about the gods and goddesses of brewing, winemaking, mm -hmm. grape growing. Music. Ugh. I mean, the list is endless. It's amazingly gross. It's like overwhelming. Oh yeah. And just, we didn't even talk about opera. There's like 8 billion operas based off of yeah, Greek gods, sure. Roman gods, And I only mythology. choose, I chose specific deities that I was, you know, I was somewhat familiar with from yeah. like teaching classes and sure. like enjoying that literature in, in times past. So I almost wanted to dig into stuff I didn't know much about. And I was like, well, maybe that's not what I want to do on this episode of Scores and Pours. To future episodes of the gods and goddesses of the world. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links to merch 
a beer list, and a playlist, and support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We're on Instagram at scoresandpours. You can also send us a DM there if you have any questions or any suggestions for topics, or you just want to say, hey, we'd love to hear from you. Instagram, scoresandpours. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. Which is the patron mascot of Scores and Pours, by the way, a kitty named June. June. June.